Father, we just lift up the United States of America to you right now. We know that the founders of this country, as they were flawed individuals, but individuals that came here not just to have, you know, representation in taxation, but also to have religious freedom. And though they were imperfect people, they, they believed that they needed to ground this republic on the God of the Bible. And how far we have removed ourselves from those values, Lord, at least in some segments of this country. In fact, there are, there are segments of this country that don't even know what truth is anymore. And it's very sad, Lord. But in times like this, there can always be revival. There can always be a great awakening. And a few of them have happened in America. In dark hours of the country, there have been pulpits unashamedly that preach the gospel, preach the word of God. And you cause something to happen, not because of those men per se, but because of the power of your word. And Lord, I just pray that you'll do something similar in our day. And I pray you'll let it start with us. Despite all the things that we could look at this morning, let us look inside our own souls. Do some soul searching, Father, and let us say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Father, as we study your word now, we just, we just pray that um, you'll speak to us. We pray again over our country. We pray over the church in the country that uh, we would get back to your word and be those who stand upon it. And we just pray now that you'll bless our time in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Mark 11, we're looking at verses 27 through Mark 12, 12. One hard question, one revealing story. Mark eleven twenty seven. If you're new to the Bible, New Testament has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the first four books. So turn over to the second book, which is the book of Mark, chapter 11, verse 27. It says these words, And they came again, Mark eleven twenty seven to Jerusalem. And as he, that is Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. And began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, these things is probably a reference to a couple things in terms of what's just happened during Passover week. The first thing is that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he was being celebrated as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the people were saying. And the religious leadership was not happy. And they were saying, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they're quiet, the very stones are going to cry out. During that week, Jesus, uh, at the beginning of that week, went into the temple and he did something that we're all familiar with. He cleansed the temple turned over the tables of the money changers, wouldn't let people pass through the temple and said, stop what you're doing. Stop it. And when he did this, he upset the apple cart for the religious leadership because you need to know that the religious leadership had set up the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, as a merchandising scheme. They were making money hand over fist and they were especially making big money at the Passover. Because at the Passover, Josephus, one of the historians at Jesus' time, says that 
A couple million people plus would descend upon Passover, one of the mandatory holidays for a Jewish person to come to Jerusalem. And pilgrims would come from all over the place. And it was huge business to uh, be selling sacrificial animals and doing money exchanges to get the proper uh, uh, coins and so forth. And so they were making huge money. And when Jesus went in there, he confronted them. And what he confronted was their very authority. See, they thought that they were the authority of all authority and that no one could stop them. And they probably weren't used to being challenged by anybody. And what does Jesus do? He goes in there and he upsets the apple cart. He turns over the tables. He, he stops what's going on. He said, this house, my house, and he quotes the Old Testament, is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it, remember, a den of thieves. And they were upset with him. In fact, they wanted to seize him right then, but they feared the people because they held him in such high esteem. But they didn't listen really to what he was saying. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. What they were thinking about was their pocketbooks and their control. And so they have a question. They say, by what authority do you do these things? You seem to be a man who thinks he has some official status where which you can stop what we're doing in this temple. Isn't it interesting that people bring up the question of authority when they're being morally challenged? Think about it. A big part of the first part of this sermon is about authority. They've asked the question, by what authority? Usually people ask that question when they're being challenged morally. You say to somebody, you know what, that's not right. And they say, who gave you that authority? Who says what's right or what's wrong anymore? And for a lot of our culture, they don't know anymore. Because many of our learning institutions have been filled with what's called relativism. Relativism simply means all truth is relative. Truth is in the eye of the beholder now. There's no objective standard for right and wrong anymore. Who says? And now, since our country has been teaching the future generation that truth is not objective anymore, it's, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. What's true is true. Two plus two equals four, no matter how you feel about it. But I want it to be five. I don't care. It's four. You see, this is where we are in our generation. The up-and-coming generation has been taught this garbage. And now they don't even know if there's something you can plant your flag in anymore. They don't know if there's some objective standard. Can anybody really say what's true anymore? Can anybody? And think about the irony of this scene. They are confronting the one who is God in human flesh. God has cleansed his temple. Jesus is God in human flesh. Amen? And they're saying, hey, 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 God, who do you think you are? Jesus Christ or something? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? People are even questioning God's authority over them anymore. Well, I don't know. I, I actually think I'm my own God. Really? Yeah, I do. That's what Shirley MacLaine said. I am God. Doesn't that make me God if I just say it? That's my truth. Oh, look out. 
See, the God of the Bible, I don't know if you've noticed in reading the Bible, has a very dim view on other gods trying to be God. Amen? <laughs> in fact, he said to the people of Israel, you shall have no other gods before me with a small g. The God of the Bible is not acknowledging that there's a whole pantheon of gods equal with him. He's saying, look, don't have idols in your life. The temple had become an idol. The people in the religious leadership were really barring people who wanted to worship the God of the Bible by their merchandising scheme. Early in Jesus' ministry, he actually cleansed the temple two times early in his ministry, and now we're seeing the later one. Let's, let's uh, go to John for a second. This is an insightful look at the first time he did it. Jesus visited Jerusalem probably at least three Passovers during his public ministry. He also visited Jerusalem as a little boy. Remember when he was 12, his family came for the Passover. This is John 2, 16. John 2, 16. And to those who were selling the doves, Jesus said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. John 2, 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? Okay, if you're gonna do these things, show us a sign. And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, to, said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, what? Of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Bible students, if Jesus cleansed the temple twice within a range of about two to three years, don't you think that the religious leadership, after they heard him say this and do what he did, would have done some soul searching? Don't you think they should have said, my goodness, look at what he's done. Maybe we should take a look at what we do during the Passover. Maybe we should stop ripping people off and barring them from worship. But when he came back to cleanse the temple later on in his earthly ministry, what did he find? The same old, same old. They did not get the message, and so he did it again. Have you noticed with God, if you don't get the message He'll keep knocking down the same tables in your life. Ouch. And all God's people said, ouch. <laughs> he showed up, and it's probably worse. And he did it again. He said, look, this house is to be a house of prayer, not a house of merchandise. And of course, because he did this, they sought to destroy him. There's some interesting uh, metaphors that appear during Passover week that we should just mention. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's presenting himself as the lamb selected. We've uh, gone over this before, but when he rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, some people argue it was a Monday, he was presenting himself as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on that day he rode in, 
the people all over Israel would select a lamb, according to Exodus 12. And they would select the lamb on the 10th day of Nisan. The month was originally called Abib. It was the first month of the religious calendar for Israel, the beginning of months based upon the Passover. So this was all spoken to them when they were still in Egypt. They would keep that lamb until Friday of Passover week and kill it at twilight. Uh, in Josephus' writings, he says twilight was settled upon by the rabbis as three in the afternoon. What time did Jesus die? Three in the afternoon. At the exact time that lambs all over Israel were being killed, Jesus said, it is finished. Do you know that in rabbinic literature, one of the last things that the uh, high priest says during the Passover season, when everything's done and he's killed the lamb for the nation, he says, it is finished. And that word in Greek means paid in full. The imagery has now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the lamb selected. Now, remember that that lamb had to be without spot or blemish. That whole week during Passover week, what are the religious leadership doing? They're asking him questions. They're inspecting the lamb to see if he was without spot or blemish. Did he come out without spot or blemish? Oh, yeah. In fact, at the end of the week, they don't want to even ask him any more questions. Because every time they bring something to him, he turns it back on them and shuts them down. He was the lamb inspected, but he will also be the lamb rejected. Because the, many of the people in Jerusalem and the religious leadership especially will reject him. In fact, they will turn him over to the Romans and ask for Barabbas to be freed instead of Jesus. Pilate, no less than five times, says, I find no fault in this man. His wife sends him a note while he's sitting on the bema, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I suffered many things in a dream because of him. Pilate tries to let him go. And the people, the religious leadership, stirring up the people, ask for a murderer instead of the Lamb of God. Of course, this is all what had to happen because Jesus came to die for the sin of the world. But the, pro the temple was being exploited and now Jesus has confronted the religious leadership, but they confront him. By what authority do you do these things? What gives you the right to do these things? Oh, simply because I'm God. I mean, how many things did he have to show them until they finally got it? You see, the truth is, brothers and sisters, they did not want to believe. They did not want to believe him. They had all the evidence. Go to Matthew 21. Here's a parallel text. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 21. Look at verse 10. 21, 10 of Matthew. And when he had entered Jerusalem, 21, 10, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Notice this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he what? And he healed them. Do you know he was doing miracles in the temple? And still they wouldn't believe him? 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children, so they saw the miracles, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, the children were even calling him the Messiah. They became believers? No. <laughs> they became indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ne never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Wow, notice, praise for who? Thyself. Who are they praising? Jesus is God. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And then, of course, they hit him with the authority question again in Matthew 21, 23. Just take a peek at it. 21, 23, they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Again, the question of authority before us. Go back to Mark. The rabbis were very famous by quoting a string of tradition for their authority. When they preached, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says the following, and they would quote that rabbi. Rabbi so-and-so says the following. On the other hand, Rabbi so-and-so says the following. You ever heard a speech like that? You're like, what in the world is this a person trying to say? And then Rabbi, rabbi so-and-so says the following, but Rabbi so-and-so, and you're like, do you have anything to say for yourself? Any original commentary here? And the constant refrain about Jesus is that he is one who speaks with authority, not like the scribes. Seems like they were afraid to say anything of themselves. And Jesus said to them, Mark eleven twenty nine. 29, I will ask you one question. Oh, here we go. You got questions? I got a question. Just one question. Pastor John is famous for this in our elder meetings. I just have one question. Okay, Pastor John. <laughs> is he in here? We probably beat him up enough this morning. Anyway, he's dabbing his forehead. And, I will ask you one question and you answer me, Jesus speaking. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus was a brilliant tactician, wasn't he? And this was common in what's called the debate of the rabbis. When they were in debate with someone, they would answer a question with a question. And that's a pretty good tactic when you're debating someone. Have you ever noticed that good salespeople are like that? You know, you might ask them a question, and then, and then they've got you in the corner. What would keep you from buying this product right now? And you, you say, how did I get here? <laughs> and then they sell you that meat, you know, for the next 10 years that stacking up in your freezer and you had to buy the extra freezer to put the meat in anyway that's that's a personal story <laughs> from many years ago <laughs> and that freezer does still work honey that's true <laughs> we should say that Jesus was always open to any honest inquirer. Anybody who came to him in honesty, he was always st shooting straight. But anybody who came to him deceptively or trying to pull a fast one on him, then he turned it around on them. He's brilliant at doing this because it's pretty hard to argue with God. And so, although many of us try, right? 
So here's this question, verse 30. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Okay, here you go. You want to know what, by what authority? I just have one simple question. The baptism of John from men or from heaven, which means from men or from God, human or divine in origin? Answer that question, and I'll be happy to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. All right, so the religious leadership, this doesn't seem that complicated of a question, but notice what they do. They began reasoning among themselves. They, they did something like this. Uh, may we have a quick sidebar that I might confer with my client? Okay, go ahead, boys. I don't know if the Jeopardy music was playing in the background. And they began reasoning among themselves, and they said, come in, come in close, huddle up, huddle, huddle. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? That's a problem. But shall we see, say from men, 32, they were afraid of the multitude, for all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. Let's see. If we say from heaven, he's going to say, then why didn't we repent when John the Baptist was calling upon Israel to repent? And by the way, here's a little caveat that even complicates it more. John the Baptist was the forerunner prophesied in Isaiah 40 who introduced Jesus as the Messiah. Oh, that's even more prickly. You know why? Because if John was from heaven and he's the prophesied forerunner, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and introduced Jesus as the Messiah to the nation. And if John's from heaven, then Jesus is from heaven and they've rejected the forerunner and the Messiah prophesied in the famous book of Isaiah. Oh, that's a problem. You see, Jesus is very strategic with his question. And if they say, oh, no, we don't think John was a legitimate prophet, you got a problem because thousands of people were coming out to John. And you remember, John was a radical preacher. People were being baptized left and right. The scene is humorous. They're on the horns of a dilemma. I don't know how long they stayed in the huddle. But if we say this, then this. But if we, no, no, but if we say that. They went back and forth, and they probably had a spokesman. <laughs> guy, guy got the short straw, you know. Comes out of the huddle, ready, break. 33, they answered Jesus. Uh, we, we don't know. <laughs> Isn't that great? We claim ignorance. Well, why were you huddled for 15 minutes? Because we, we, uh. We had to discuss how thoroughly and deeply we don't know. And we've concluded that we really don't know. <laughs> okay. Now this is one of my favorite responses in the Bible. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> End of discussion. See, Jesus had a question about authority too. And he said basically this, is your authority God's word? Do you know that in your lifetime you have seen the forerunner arrive? Prophesied 700 years ago. You guys say you wait for this. You have messianic expectations. You can't wait until the Messiah comes. And now these things have happened in your lifetime. And what do you do? You won't believe. And now... Jesus prophesies over Israel as he rides 
in on the triumphal entry. Now these things are hidden from your eyes. Sad. Now, Jesus is about to tell a parable, a hard question, a revealing story. That's today's message. We go into chapter 12. His parable has to do with authority and will reveal the hearts of the people that have just confronted him and he turned it around on them. Move into Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. And he said, A man planted a vineyard. He put or built a wall around it. And Mexico is going to pay for it. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, there you go. Anyway. just came to me during this week, you know? It's just one of those moments. He died. The, the New King James said he set a hedge around it. He dug a vat under the wine press, built a tower, a watchtower, rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So notice the meticulous care here of the, the uh, vineyard owner. He's, he planted it. He built a wall around it, protection, put a watchtower up. He dug a vat under the wine press. He built a tower, and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, without getting into a bunch of historical detail, let me just tell you that this is something that was very common in the day of Jesus in Israel. Of course, you know, there was a huge uh, uh, emphasis on this with the vines and the grapes and the wine in Israel. Wine was a staple in their culture. It was a picture of joy and life. And so, you know, if you've ever been to wine country before, you know you can see down in Temecula and so forth, you can see how all of this is done. And so he's got this property and he rents it out. And uh, he goes off on a journey. Another one of the gospel writers says he goes off on a long journey. Now, to just give a little bit more background and clarity to this, I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 5. So if you'd all find the book of Isaiah, a little past the Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah 5. This is called the Song of the Vineyard. Everybody agrees that this is about Israel, and it will say that clearly, Isaiah chapter 5. And this is the backdrop biblically of the parable and the story that Jesus tells was happening in his day. There were people who did this with land and then rented it out, kind of like you would rent out a home today and you cared for it. Maybe you built it and refurbished it and rented it out. So, but this is the biblical backdrop, and I've given you the practical historical backdrop. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, Isaiah 5, 2. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, so you can see all the elements of the story that Jesus shares. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. We have in the immediate backdrop when Jesus curses the fig tree, remember that? And he expected to find fruit on it, and he, the, the fig tree withers, and everybody's amazed at it. Kind of a, a parallel uh, symbol. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, verse 3, Judge between me and my vineyard, God is speaking. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, 
did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. The wall's going to be gone. And it will be consumed. I will break, it, break down its wall. We all know that Isaiah's writing about 700 B.C. We know that a lot of this happened when Nebuchadnezzar came in with his troops and destroyed Jerusalem, 586 B.C. It will become trampled ground. He says, I will lay it waste, verse 6, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. You might want to write in your Bible there, Southern California. <laughs> For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So there you go. The vineyard is Israel, the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice. Now we're going to get a little bit more practical detail. But behold, what did he find? Bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Now, oftentimes as a Bible teacher, when I see things like this, I'm tempted to shift from Israel to our country. And I would imagine that anybody who lives in a contemporary nation wonders about these things. The U.S. is not Israel. We do not live under a theocracy, but we're a country founded on biblical principles and values. When God looks at us and analyzes the landscape, what do you think he sees? I don't have to tell you about the contemporary debates that are happening in our culture about what's right and wrong. That's a lot of what this message is about. What authority is ultimately going to determine morals for us? But let me make it more specific. What determines what's right and wrong for you? Who is your authority? What is your authority? You know, we Christians are famous for saying, oh, God's my authority. I live for the kingdom of God. The Bible's my authority until we are in a pinch. Until we are challenged with maybe commitments that we've made that are not now as easy as they once were. And now we have to ask some deeper questions about do I really believe what I say I believe? Or do I give it lip service? And then God goes on. I want to pick out some portions. He's going to pronounce some woes. He says, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. Skip down to verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Skip down to verse 12, part B. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Um, go to verse 18, chapter 5. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. They drag it everywhere. The whole citizenry and leadership is full of lies. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Here's another woe, 23, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right I hope I don't have to tell you how relevant that is today. I hope I don't have to tell you that I, teaching through the gospel of Mark and seeing a parable of a vine and the growers, 
have just taken you back to a verse that everybody would say is the foundation of this passage. But how fitting it is for this day. Amen? Amen. As we watch what's happening in our world, in our political world, in our church world, and we go, are you kidding me? Really? The people who are in the right are made to look wrong. The people who are wrong are made to look right. Hello? Back to Mark. One writer that I read this week said, the vineyard was a national symbol for Israel. In fact, the very temple in which Jesus was standing sported a richly carved grapevine, 70 cubits high, sculpted around the door which led from the porch to the holy place. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest gold. The bunches hanging upon them were costly jewels. Herod first placed it there, and rich and patriotic Jews from time to time would add to its embellishment. They would add to the, the picture of the grapevine. One contributed a new grape, another a leaf, and still another a cluster of the same precious metals. The vine had an uncommon importance and a sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. Do you think that they were thinking of this story from Isaiah 5? I think undoubtedly they were. And so Jesus is telling the story. He says, this owner rented it out and he goes abroad. He leaves. And at the harvest time, back to Mark 12, verse 2, he, that is the owner, sent a slave or a servant to the vine growers, those who rented the property, in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard. That is, the people would pay rent by the produce of the vineyard. So it was very simple in those days. You take a portion of what was grown and you give it to the owner and that was your rent. And it made life very simple. So the owner, it's harvest time, so he sends a servant and he wants him to collect. And they, they took that servant, look at verse 3, they beat him and sent him, empty, sent him away empty-handed. So the servant comes on behalf of his master. And what do they do? They beat him and they won't give him the rent. This is kind of an ancient Pacific Heights. Anybody ever seen the movie with Michael Keaton, Pacific Heights? Oh, it's one of those movies where you just want to choke Michael Keaton. Because he goes, and this, this young couple, they, they buy this property with all the best of intentions. And it's a, it's a dual-level property, and they want to rent out the downstairs. And him and this friend of his come in, and they tear apart the apartment. And they cause, finally, the anger of the owner to get him in trouble. And then he ends up in trouble. It's this terrible thing. Terrible. Well worth watching. Anyway, <laughs> verse 4. And again, the vineyard owner sent another slave or servant, and they wounded him in the head. My master uh, would like his grapes now for rent. Bam! They treated him shamefully. And again, New King James adds, again, he sent another. And that one they killed. I think I'd send the marshals to the door rather than sending any more servants. And so with many others beating some and killing others. Now remember, Jesus is telling the story of this vineyard. NIV, if you have it, it says, he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Here's the implication. He sent another one and yet another one. And they all came back either bruised, beaten, wounded, or dead. And do you see what's happening here? The picture is the vineyard is Israel. 
And God's been sending servant after servant to them. Who do you guys think the servants are? The prophets. And the prophets have come through the corridor of time. And the history of Israel was they pretty much rejected all of them. They would not listen to the prophets. And some they beat. And some they wounded and beat in the head. You know, there's a, speaking of Isaiah, there's a tradition mentioned in the book of Hebrews that Isaiah was sawn in two by the leadership of Israel. Others were beheaded. Others they, they simply just killed. Even in the New Testament, we've already seen James was killed, the brother of John, killed. For what? For being a representative of Jesus. We see that uh, actually in the book of Acts. And so this is a patient owner, don't you think? How many servants would you have sent? I mean, how many times would it have taken for your servant to come back with a black eye? They, they, they wouldn't give me the rent. Okay, another volunteer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> busy, uh, I'm doing the dishes. How patient was the owner? You know, we, are, we look at stories like this and we go, wow, God is he's a God of justice and wrath. Oh, he is. But would you have sent the second servant? He did. He sent servant after servant, prophet after prophet, and they treated them outrageously, shamefully. So he had one more to send, a beloved son, he sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. Spurgeon shares these incredible words. He says of God, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God the Father sent his son, knowing what their history was, knowing how we are. He still sent him, and he knew they were going to kill him. The whole story is rooted in God's love, incredible love. He didn't give up on us. He kept sending and sending, and now his son comes. But those vine growers, seven, said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They say that uh, the contemporary situation is that if an owner sent a son, the renters might assume that the father had died and the son had become the owner of the property. And here's what apparently could happen in these days and may have happened in Jesus' time. The son would come, demand the rent, they, they the, the ones who were the renters, would kill the heir and it would become an ownerless property. And now, since they were the renters and no one was there to claim the property because the owner was dead and so was his heir, guess what? They got the first shot at the property. This is what they were doing. Even in Jesus' day, corruption was running deep just like it does today where people will go into properties and 
They never have an intention to pay rent. They squat in that property and try to rip off the owner. God has a dim view of that. See, it was all about envy and about jealousy. And they took the son, look at verse 8, and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. And in three days, brothers and sisters, they will do this to Jesus. They will take him, kill him. Outside the city, they're about to do this very thing to the son. You see, this story is very personal. And it shows you the deity of Jesus. He knows what they're going to do. And so he asks a question. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? If you're listening to this story, just back up for a second. You hear this story told, let's say in a modern way. What would you say? What should the owner do? Take him to court and sue him. Get a shotgun, man, some of you might say. I don't know how you would respond, but think about the story. They've killed multiple servants, beat others, and they just killed the owner's son brutally. How would you respond to the story? Would you be outraged? Would you say, hey, this is time for vengeance? What do you think should happen in a real life scenario? Can you predict what the owner should do or would do? Let me ask another question. What more can God do than he's done when he sends, sends servant after servant after servant, then sends his son and they kill him? What more can God do? You know, people think God hasn't done enough. I don't know if I could just see something and happen in the sky or... Oh, God's done plenty in our history, folks. What more can he do? Should he keep these people unpunished? For the owner is not dead. He's surely alive. <laughs> Some of you know what I just did. <laughs> He's living on the inside. What? Roaring like a lion. God's not dead. He's surely alive. What should he do? Well, Jesus says he will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Luke has a parallel account when he says this. They respond. Remember, the religious leaders are listening to his story. He's told, telling them the parable along with the people. And they say, when he says he will, he will destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others, they say, may it never be. No, no. Because they have an idea where the story is going. The vineyard is Israel, but since Israel doesn't produce fruit, it's going to be given to the Gentiles. Unthinkable. No, don't give the vineyard to them. And Jesus says these words. Oh, I got to take you to one more. Go to Matthew 21. <laughs> one more. This just brings a little bit more paint to the canvas. I will tell you this too. We're about to take communion together. So uh, if you can prepare your heart for that. Matthew 21, look at verse 40. 39, you can see the story Jesus is told. They took him, 21, 39, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, notice how they respond. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to others, other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. You ever heard a story and you get indignant about the story and then you realize you've done the same thing? 
Remember when Nathan comes to King David and tells him that story? And David is so upset, that man shall pay with his life. And then Nathan says, uh, you are that man. You see, they've gotten caught up in the story and they say, man, those wretches should pay the price. And Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Back to Mark and we'll finish. Jesus quotes this scripture we just read in Mark's account. Have you not even read this scripture? He's quoting from Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalm, very famous, read during the feasts of Israel, even the Passover specifically. Mark 12, 10. Have you never read this, this scripture? Speaking to the religious leaders, I think they knew the Bible. <laughs> but this is a slap in their face. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. That's Psalm 118, 22. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118, 23. He says, look, you guys, you're the builders. I am the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone is the principal stone for size and beauty, literally the cornerstone. Everything must align to him or the structure will be off or it will crumble. The cornerstone is the stone to which everything else is aligned. If you do not align your life to Jesus, everything else will be off or everything else will crumble. Have you realized that? I keep learning it week in and week out. And he keeps trying to show me, are you going to align your life to me or not? I'm the chief cornerstone. Will you steady the building of your life to me or not? What are you going to do? I've had a lot of moments like that during my life where the Lord's confronted me. In Luke's account, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, Luke 20, verse 18, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus is saying, do you see your precious temple? If it does not align to me and my truth, it's going to crumble to the ground and crush you under its weight. And do you know that in about 40 years, that's exactly what happened? That temple structure fell to the ground, and what not one stone was left upon another. Wow. And so the story has been told, and the final verse says, Now, what, what do you think verse 12 should say? I mean, if everything's right in the world, and they all fell at Jesus' feet and said, I'm so sorry, Lord, I realize this story is about me. I'm a bad grape. Or whatever they might say. Help me, Lord. But it says they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the multitude, for they were understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. As we come to the end of this Sunday morning, that's really the choice that you have when you hear the gospel preached and the word of God spoken and it becomes very personal, it's pretty easy to be a spectator, huh? Like, I like to spectate. Then I can say, they should have done this over there. Why didn't they do that? 
My son has me on video after church one day. Confession, I'm a Steeler fan. I know that troubles some of you, but pray for me. It was after church, had the tie loosened. I'm sitting in the chair, and, I'm, and the Steelers made a very poor play. And I went, oh, come on! Something like that. <laughs> My son had me on video. Pastor Michael Lance, Living Truth, Christian Fellowship. <laughs> yep. You see, we all have our issues, but here's the point. When the Lord speaks to us from his word, the question is always this. What are you going to do? How do you want to respond? Do you know Christ? Have you built your house on the solid rock or on sinking sand? Are you going to go with the winds of the world? Who knows what's true anymore? Who knows who should have authority? Who should really speak into somebody's life? Are you going to anchor your life and family and future? On the word of God. That's the choice. So before we hand out these elements, I just want to say to you, if you're a Christian, then he invites you to this table to remember what he did for you, to proclaim his death until he comes, to commemorate, to celebrate, to look forward. But if you're not a Christian, would you bow your hearts with me? Bow your heads, Father. I just want to pray for those who are not believers. And I want to just speak to you for a second. If you don't know that you know Jesus Christ, if you don't know that rock is underneath you, get right right now. Something like this, no perfect prayer, but has to have this essence. And I would say to you, just pray it now. The devil will tell you tomorrow. The Bible, God says now. Something like this, Jesus, would you save me? I believe you came to this world, that you're God in human flesh, that you died on that cross for me, that you rose from the grave, prayed if it's you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I want to be your servant. I want to do life your way. You might be rededicating your life right now. Maybe you need to get something right. Maybe you've been standing on the precipice of a poor decision. Don't go that way. No matter how attractive it looks, take your stand. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. Father, help those who have opened their hearts, those believers that may be struggling, those who may be lacking some faith this morning, those who are going through a difficult time. May you anchor them, Lord. Steady them in the storm. And as we meet you and you meet us at your table, may we celebrate your finished work on the cross, your glorious resurrection. And we, we do lift up our country to you. We lift up the church in the country. We pray over all that's happening, Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please meet us as we take of these elements. We don't want it to be some robotic thing that we do. Rather, we want to remember all you've done for us and how special we are to you. We are your people of your own possession, bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And as we take these elements, may you meet us where we are and strengthen the faith of each precious person that you've brought to this place today. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.